Hey, it's Bao, and this is Coffee with Bao. This is a series where I have coffee and chat with people who are doing very cool stuff in business, music, entertainment, pop culture, and more. Specifically, I like to focus on the topics of the creative process, cultural identity, and personal growth. Since this is one of our very first episodes, I'd really appreciate if you could send me any feedback on what's working and what could use some work. You can leave a comment or contact me at coffeewithbao.com. So let's meet our guest. Yay! Hi! Hey! <laughs> Today I'm sitting down with, virtually, uh, a fellow Asian American creative who's had some pretty interesting career changes. She's gone from scooping ice cream to working in a basement office to photographing weddings. <laughs> in fact, she's the photographer of the last Ming and Ping album cover from 2019. We'll talk about that later. And now she is the published author of a new novel called The Unraveling of Cassidy Holmes. Here's my friend and confidant of over 20 years, Elisa R. Sloan. Yeah! Hey! <laughs> hey, Elisa. Hi. Thank you so much for being my guinea pig for this new series. I'm so happy to be here. Oh, thank you. Um, since this is coffee with Bao, but I know you don't drink coffee, can you tell us what you have in your mug? Just water. Gotta stay <laughs> hydrated. Awesome. And um, just to point out, it's a Houston Public Library mug. Very appropriate. Represent? Yeah. <laughs> I totally approve of the water. It's the healthiest drink you can have. <laughs> um, cool. So you're dialing in right now from Austin, Texas. However, we met in Houston um, about 20 years ago. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and that was where you were born and raised. And you actually have a really interesting Asian-American story. Um, and I was wondering if you can tell folks how your parents decided that Houston would be the place to have kids, basically. Well, my mom is from Japan, and she met my dad in Minnesota. Um, when she was a foreign exchange student and about eight years later they got married and they got married in new york and my dad was fielding job offers at the time and there were two opportunities for him um in salt lake city and in houston and he knew that if we moved to or if they moved to salt lake city that my sister and i as yet unborn um <laughs> would not look like anybody else who lived there wow. so he decided that uh houston would be where we would grow up and so it was very diverse and my sister and i fit in perfectly fine wow that's crazy because i before moving to houston i, I didn't have the perception that it would be a diverse place um you know i, I in my mind it was more of a homogenous um place racially culturally but uh, you're totally right. Houston is a very diverse metropolis. Um, it's, it was a really great place to grow up. Do you have any, were there any like interesting things about growing up biculturally in between the two cultures? Um, yeah, so back in the day, um, my sister and I would go to American school during the school year and then we'd go to Japan during their school year in, in the summer. <laughs> and. Then, come home in August and recover from jet lag and then start American school all over again. And during the school year in America, we would also go to Japanese school on Saturdays. And so we were going wow. to school all the time. 
Um, but the cool thing about going to Japan in the summer, besides seeing family, was that we would see all these cool cultural things that happened in Japan first. So like Sailor Moon, um, yes. we saw that first before anyone else in America. <laughs> <laughs> um, I knew about Pokemon before everyone else in America and I had like a Pikachu shirt and it was really like, I guess I wasn't very cool because no one knew who Pikachu was at the time. But, <laughs> You're like um, too ahead of your time. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I was like, you'll figure it out. You'll you'll see Pokemon. It'll come here because back in the day, like it didn't. You didn't hear about these things. You know, five minutes after it happened on Twitter, you would end up like it would take months for something to trickle over. And so, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Wow, such a trailblazer, accidental trailblazer. <laughs> <laughs> That's so awesome. What were some of like the? Um, were there any challenges? To growing up as a um, you know apparently Asian person in Texas, not as much as you would think. So maybe if we were in a smaller town um, where everyone was white, perhaps that would be an issue. But we were in Houston, where it was really diverse, and my sister and I didn't really have much of a um, problem with anything, you know, other than being mistaken for Chinese. <laughs> which happened to any Asian person. Like, you all true. got lumped into being Chinese. <laughs> <laughs> I see. Um, oh, that's cool. That's great. Um, I think Houston is a really great place. Uh, underrated, in my opinion. So I mentioned... Houston is great. Really is. H-Town, what's up? <laughs> um, I mentioned earlier you've had some pretty dramatic career changes. I know that in college you um, were scooping ice cream at a retail ice cream shop. And then you spent a long time in uh, an office job before, while you were working on your photography business as well. Um, can you kind of talk about some of the work that you had to put in in order to make the transition from an office job to full-time photography? Sure, so um, I graduated from college in 2008 during the recession. And the job that I was able to find was a really small entry-level job um, at the state of Texas. And um, it was a state agency. And it was in a basement with fluorescent lighting and there was no natural lighting at all. And Perfect. It was, <laughs> it was horrible. But it did have benefits, so I can't knock it too much. Yeah, <laughs> and it paid totally. for our wedding. So, I mean, we had a small wedding, nothing outlandish, but it paid for our wedding. So. Um, I was working there for about a year before I got married, and that's when I realized that wedding photography was not the really stodgy, old, boring stuff that you used to see in, like, Father of the Bride movies and mm -hmm. stuff like that. Um, it's actually much more dynamic and beautiful, like, artistic, and you can actually make it something creative and wonderful. And so I decided that I was going to start a wedding photography business, and I started my business in 2010. Um, having already done the foundations of photography back in high school with you, if you remember. Um, <laughs> yeah. HSPVA, yeah. we've got a shout out to HSPVA. HSPVA, woo! And from then on, I was um, working weekends, shooting weddings, and working in the daytime at my day job, and um, blogging at night and hustling and Jeez, man. basically working really, really hard for two years after that. So I was um, able to quit my day job in 2012. So you said there were two years in which you were working both jobs just like constantly? 
Yes. <laughs> Jeez. Wow. It really paid off because um, I think that your wedding photography business really made a splash and an impact on a lot of people. I thought that your approach to wedding photography you know, was something that I overlooked because you're constantly trying to inject more artistic things into um, the work rather than just like showing people standing around with each other in their fancy garb. <laughs> so uh, totally that photography um, kind of elevated my opinion of wedding photography a lot. Oh, thank you. So after about 20 years of not collaborating, we finally, <laughs> we finally were able to work on the Ming and Ping album cover together last year. And um, I'll show an image of that later, but like, I, I really appreciate you kind of get it going out of photo retirement to help me do that project. And it was really, um, it opened my eyes to how insanely hard and how much talent you actually have to have to pull that off. Okay. Thanks. I had a lot of practice though. <laughs> it was you really did. Um, let's talk about that a little later. Later. Um, now in 2020, you've got this brand new novel, like you're a published novelist, which is amazing. Um, your book is called The Unraveling of Cassidy Holmes. It came out last September. Can you give us an elevator pitch of the book? Yeah. Um, so in 2002, Gloss, the group, was one of the biggest pop phenomenons in the world. And they implode suddenly when Cassidy, one of the members, leaves without warning and without explanation. 15 years later, she dies by suicide. And so the book is an examination of what happened back in the day when they were together and when the group formed and the lead up to the funeral in the present and uh, what went wrong within the group and also why did she kill herself? Wow, that's a lot of stuff to pack into a novel. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to show the audience an image of your book cover. I'll be right back. Uh, here's a photo of Elisa's new novel, The Unraveling of Cassidy Holmes. Um, the author's name is Elisa R. Sloan. The book is published by William Morrow, which is an imprint of HarperCollins, which means you can find it everywhere books are sold. Um, it's being getting really great reviews. You can't miss the cover art. And um, search for The Unraveling of Cassidy Holmes wherever you buy paper books, ebooks, or audiobooks. Let's take a little break. Hey, friends. Not sure if you know this, but I serve on the board of a nonprofit called the Slants Foundation. We're a volunteer driven organization that provides resources, scholarships, and mentorship to Asian American creatives looking to incorporate activism into their art. We also produce events that feature these talented creators. Our last virtual concert helped over 500 people register to vote for the very first time. You can learn about and support the Slants Foundation by visiting theslants.org. Thanks, and see you soon. Let's get back to the show. And I have heard a rumor that you're super into the audiobook. I love the audiobook. So they asked me um, for my opinion on all the different voices and so I got to choose the voice actors for the audiobook and there's seven different voices because there's four main points of view and then three smaller points of view and they all get their own distinct voice and I just love it great that must be so cool to see your um your work that was released in one sort of medium and then seeing it transformed into a different medium 
Yeah, it's really cool. I did not expect to get an audiobook. And so when they, awesome. or when I did not expect to get any consultation on the audiobook, I didn't know anything about, I mean, this is my first time like dealing with an imprint. So I was just like, okay, well, whatever happens, happens. And I was really glad that I was able to give my input on things. That's really great. Um, I'm excited to, I'm going to listen to it actually, because I usually like to consume stories while I'm cooking or doing some other stuff. That's so I, to be honest, I am about 75 pages into your book, which is, I don't know, not a lot, like one fifth maybe. Um, what I've been fascinated by is your ability to weave in so many different characters' perspectives, so many different time periods, and even different methods of communication, like news clippings and mis messages to each other, um, weaving all of those things into one big narrative that you can emotionally grasp onto. It must have been totally uh, a crazy process for you to do. I'm wondering why you chose to and how you did that. Well, it kind of came naturally to me because I knew that I wanted to have four main perspectives of these four girls um, or four women. Um, each member of the group gloss to tell their own individual stories of what happens during those, uh, those turbulent years when they were all together. And it just, I don't know. I just, it was or organic. It happened naturally. I was like, uh, oh, okay, I'm going to write it this way. That's crazy. Um, had you been influenced by some other works that took that approach of like knitting a bunch of separate things together? Um, you know, I read so many books while I was writing this book because it uh -huh. took five years to write this book that I think I took a little bit from every book that I've read. I think I read over 250 books during that wow. time. Wow. Five years is no joke. That's such a long time to work on one project. Um, I know that it's like a compulsion or an obsession that you need to get out. Like for me, when I work on an album specifically, like a, a collection of songs, it feels like I'm incubating some sort of creature inside me and that I like have to let it out that it's growing. I'm wondering what your like driving force behind writing the book was. Like, how did you feel about it? It was like a, a nagging feeling. Like I was being possessed by the characters and that I needed to tell their <laughs> stories. Um, and it was really annoying because, you know, I would get frustrated with the process and I would set aside the, the work in progress. And I would be like, I'm not going to work on this anymore. It's, it's horrible. I hate this process and I don't want to do it anymore. Yeah. And I would leave it for like, you know, half a year. And, um, and then this nagging feeling would keep coming back to me. Like, you're not done writing this character's story arc yet. So you need to keep going. And I would have to pick it back up and keep going. Wow. That's so crazy. So literally you were haunted by these characters. Like yes, I was. <laughs> that's I think nuts. that's um, not unusual for a lot of authors though. Like I, I hear stories about authors who are like possessed or nagged by their characters in their heads and they have to finish writing the story otherwise they don't get in a piece wow that's crazy for me when i'm working on a record i feel like getting that record out is like vomiting a rainbow kind of it's painful it's terrifying it's complicated but like it's beautiful at the same time it needs to exist um <laughs> Do you remember any of the terrifying or euphoric feelings during the process of writing the book? Oh, gosh. I had this really bad, many, many times it's happened, but I had a really bad moment where I was 
looking at the five years of work that I'd done and I was, I had rewritten it so many times and I was just looking at it like, this is awful. It's trash. I just want it to not exist anymore. And it was like my lowest point with this book. And um, amusingly, like maybe three months later, I got a book deal from this book. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, obviously it was not trash, but um, yeah, it was just that, that feeling like, maybe you have that feeling too where you're like I've spent so long on this project and it doesn't feel like it it is where it should be and you just are so frustrated with it yeah that was that was a bad time do you now looking back do you feel like that was a figment of your imagination like your insecurities yeah I think I was having a creative temper tantrum that day and I just really needed to like work out and I had to go see an author speak that day I saw Angie Thomas talk and um, I was just like, oh, okay, you know, she reinvigorated me. She was like, you can't be scared of the blank page. Um, and I think the quote that she gave was, um, fear is not a God. So you can't, you can't wow. fear the blank page. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, she knows what she's saying. Like, awesome. <laughs> she knows what she's doing. Yeah. Super inspiring. That's, that's so cool. And now you're speaking about your book in public too, which is... Um, I've no, I've never known you to like flock toward the spotlight. <laughs> You're a pretty private person. Yeah. However, I've joined a few of your events and I've been really impressed that um, about your openness in talking about some of the mental struggles that you've had while writing the book. Um, what do you think the biggest mental health struggle um, you had to overcome between like writing and getting it published? Well, I was writing in rewriting about Cassidy's depression in this book and I did not realize that it was depression at the time I was undiagnosed and I had not talked to anybody and I just thought I was having like a bad week slash month slash year slash couple of years and and you know I was writing this depression arc out and I was like man this is really not healthy like something is actually wrong with me and so as soon as I finished the the draft of the book I went and got a therapist and I'm doing a lot better now that I have a therapist and medication <laughs> so um wow. yeah that's the real deal man that's like you know I'm super appreciative that you've been sharing that story because a lot of us um a lot of people feel like it's not spoken about enough to hear the nuances of the different perspectives you know so it's um, a valuable thing that you've been sharing your story well thanks you know it's I like to think that um, by sharing my story someone else will maybe recognize themselves as well and be like oh wow so it's not just a really bad funk it's something that can be treated yeah and go seek help and yeah so I hope that inspires somebody that's great. You know, I, I wrote online a few days ago that, or maybe it was video, but um, you have such a more profound connection to somebody's work when you kind of see them as a human being and, and see their nuances as a person, you know. Um, so mm -hmm. I think for you to also back up your book with these appearances has been super effective and, and really appreciated. Um, let's show that book again. Elisa's book, Elisa R. Sloan, her new novel is called The Unraveling of Cassidy Holmes, um, and it's available wherever you buy paper books, ebooks, or audiobooks. <laughs> Thank you so much, Elisa. Um, 
so now you've got a few new ideas that you've been messing around with, and I won't ask you to share them. <laughs> but in terms of process, has there anything, has there been anything different about the process now that you're like working on a follow up? Well, I'm going to tell you my what I learned and uh, what I should be using uh, as my template now, and then I'm going to tell you the truth. So. So the, the the illusion is that I learned a lot from my first book and I learned how to make a writing habit and write even though I don't feel quote unquote like it. And, you know, you have to write something in order to edit it. So you can't edit a blank page. So you just need to write no matter what is basically what I'm trying to say. And uh-huh. I wish that I was doing that, but um, I'm not. I'm kind of stuck where I am right now trying to figure out what to do next. And, you know, I want to berate myself about it, but at the same time, we are in a pandemic. And so I feel like it's natural to be kind of stuck right now. So I'm just going to give myself some grace. Yeah, totally earned it. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, the process now you've, is there more pressure to turn in things on time now for you? Um, you know, there's people waiting for me to to give them something. So I have an agent now. I have an editor who's uh, interested in my next project, although it's not contracted. So um, I'm not on a deadline. But I, even though I'm, I don't have a contract uh, for the next book, I do feel like people are waiting to see what I have next. Like I have the expectation of readers, the expectation of my team. So I do feel a little bit of pressure. <laughs> <laughs> Have there been um, new uh, uh, tactics that you've been trying out to try to combat this feeling of, um, you know, not being able to start on something new? Yeah, you know, I've been brainstorming a lot and I have this little tool called the Alpha Smart, um, and it's a keyboard that is made for children, I believe, uh, learning how to type. And there's only four lines of um of keystrokes that are visible on the screen and it's very cheap and portable and like journalists use it on the go and it's really great for brainstorming because you can just free write and see if anything pops up um i know some authors use it to actually draft their book and they they do it so they can get as many words down as possible in a certain amount of time but um i think it works better for me to brainstorm so that's what i'm using it for Whoa, that's super interesting. So the point is that you're not nitpicking what you've written, right? The point is just to get you to put it out there? Yes. Wow, yeah, that's just so cool. keep writing and to make progress. Yeah. I think the songwriting equivalent of that would be just to freestyle into a recording and then go back later and pick out what sounds good um, and use that stuff. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. Yeah. <clears throat> Okay, so finally, after 20 years of not ever collaborating, <laughs> we were able to work together on the album cover photos for Ming and Ping's last record, Los Angeles, November 2019. And uh, I'm going to show those images right now. So on the left, you'll see Los Angeles, November 2019. And then on the right, there's an instrumental version of that. We took a few really great photos around downtown Los Angeles. and. That gave me a chance to see some of your process, Elisa, and realize how well-planned and methodical and talented you've got to be to pull something off that's so big and complicated. 
Um, for example, you know, you have basically a 3D model of those sets in your brain and, you know, down to the angle and placement of the lighting before we even set foot on this, this, the, uh, the set, which is super impressive to me and like a whole new dimension of, of thinking that I, I was like blown away by. Um, the reason I bring that up is that shows in your book as well, like, you know, your ability to grab all of these perspectives and time periods and a bunch of stuff and turn it into something that you can, people can emotionally grasp onto. It's super cool. Okay, that's a long setup, but <laughs> my, <laughs> my question is, do you have any tips for people like me who um, don't have as much practice or skill um, assembling such a wide variety of elements into one big thing? Well, you're going to hate this answer, but I'm going to have to say you have to practice and practice and practice some more. So <laughs> I have like a lot of practice doing uh, really quick setups. You know, we were trying to shoot the, the album cover images like in really fast and quick and dirty, just get it done. And I do the same thing on wedding days where I'm like, you know, this is a wedding. It's not a photo shoot. I'm not going to keep you from your wedding guests and family and everybody for hours taking photos of you. Yeah. Um, I'm going to ask for 20 minutes of your time and I'm, we're going to shoot and then we're going to, you're going to go hang out with everybody else that you want to hang out with and you're not going to spend time with me. And I think that gave me the practice to really get um, like really fast and really good at seeing light and um, messing around with light and giving a variety of poses and um, looks i guess you could say right right that's crazy because um you know when i was working with you on that shoot i felt like you were definitely like an athlete that you had practiced and everything was like muscle memory um oh by the way i want to shout out to everyone who helped us do that shoot you guys really helped and um to make it happen um yeah, but like i you. said yeah you guys were great you Definitely had the muscle memory, which was super impressive because we did, we were super time limited to, to make that shoot happen. And um, yeah, it was just really impressive. Uh, are there skills or is there one big skill, life skill or work skill that you're trying to level up on right now? Uh, you know, I'm trying to make it a habit to write anything every day just because I have gotten out of the habit. Um, when I was editing the book with my editor, I stopped writing something new. And so um, I got out of the habit of writing and I was just reactive to what she wanted me to work on. Um, and right now I have to be proactive about creating something new. So trying to get better. I see. Yeah, the consistency and the practice, um, there's definitely, you know, a lot of tactics that people recommend. And I guess it's about trying out and see what works for you. But like you said, encouragement from other people goes a long way. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. So, Elisa, do you have any closing thoughts you want to leave the audience with? Um, you know, if you have something on your mind and you want to start creating it, like the best time to do it is now. Well, the best time to do it was yesterday, but you can't go back to yesterday. So start working on it now. Um, you know, I didn't think that I would become a published author and I have a book deal. So, hey, you know, <laughs> um, awesome. I just started working on a book and it became something and now people can read it and it's really cool. So I would say don't limit yourself and 
actually work on the thing that you're thinking about working on. Just like steal a little time from your day every day and chisel away at it a little bit and hopefully it'll become something. That's really great advice. Thank you. Um, So cool. Thank you. That was Elisa R. Sloan. She's still here. That is Elisa R. Sloan. (laughs) (laughs) With her new novel, The Unraveling of Cassidy Holmes. You can find Elisa on her website or at uh, elisarsloan.com. And uh, Elisa, can you hang on the line while I give a little outro and then I'll come back and give you a proper goodbye? Of course. Awesome. Thank you. Guys, thank you so much for joining us for Coffee with Bao. Um, if you want to support the show, you can leave a comment. Um, since this is an early episode, you can leave us some feedback too, if that's possible. If you can financially support me in creating all of this content, please buy me a coffee at coffeewithbao.com. And Elisa and I thank you so much for having Coffee with Bao. We'll see you later. You want to see our beautiful mugs while we chat? Coffee with Bao is also available in video. Just search for it on YouTube and hit the subscribe button.